Amen. As always, as your outreach minister, I need to do some shameless plugs for uh, what we do around here. First of all, uh, one of the great things that we do uh, is our food pantry. And I, I kind of look at our food pantry as a gauge of what the uh, local economy is. And we've gone from around 100 bags of food a week recently to about nearly 150 a week. And Monty does a great job of getting as much food from the, the, the uh, Harvest uh, Food Bank, Second Harvest Food Bank, but we need more. And it is in your bulletin this week the different things that we need uh, specifically. So if you can look in there, you can see what we need. And if you guys can bring it, we have a red, uh, I'm going to call it a garbage can, but we have a red barrel, because trash can for food just doesn't sound right, uh, a red barrel out in the foyer over here for us to collect food so that we can distribute it. If you will, pray with me. God, I ask you to help us right now to focus on you for a few minutes. Father, it is a busy, chaotic, evil world. And we are in amongst all that. And Lord, I ask you to set us apart. And help us to be the light that you want us to shine in this neighborhood. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was having problems trying to figure out what to preach this Sunday. Uh, and had uh, looked at the seven sayings of the cross. I looked at uh, other sevens that happen in the book of John. Because John has many lists of seven things that are going on. And of course, seven means perfection and completion uh, and, and all the things of that nature. But then, as we were preparing for an outreach funeral for Jenna Ellis and family this past Saturday, yesterday, she called on Thursday afternoon and said, could you do Revelation 21.4? as the funeral uh, sermon or sermonette. And of course, at that particular point, I said yes. And then I started diving into it and look at it. And I thought for me in my season of life and for others here, this would be a great time of reflection for us. Revelation 21.4 says, God will wipe all tears from their eyes. So as we look at that, as I got to thinking, the worst pain in the world is brought on by loss of someone close to you. The, the inward pain that you feel uh, is just immense. For me, just a few weeks ago, 
uh, losing my sister, you know, the person that, uh, maybe the only person, well, the only person that was left that had known me closely for 67 years. And although we weren't as close as we maybe should have been or could have been, the fact of the matter, first of all, in hearing that she was going to die was a shock. And then being there when hospice came by, and she made the decision to discontinue her dialysis. That was a tearful moment. But then getting the news that she finally had succumbed, uh, it, was just, it was just hurt. I remember back when my mother passed away. Uh, it was right after an elders meeting. And even though we had been ready for this for months, the pain just was overwhelming. You see, whether loss occurs suddenly or with someone having large amounts of advance notice, it's impossible for us to actually prevent shock from setting in. And I don't know about you, but you feel emotionally numb. And you may deny the loss. Pain and guilt creep up on you. And during this stage in grieving, the pain of loss just starts to set in. You start thinking about it, and you know there are things that will not happen in the future. There are things that should have happened in the past that didn't. And so you have the balance of, I'm glad we did this, but the regrets in many other things. During that time, you experience all kinds of difficult and unexpected emotions from shock, anger, guilt, and profound sadness. One of the things that when I learned it in my master's work, it said that the pain of grief could disrupt your physical health. And at that time, even though I was 40, I was thinking I would be immune to that. That it would not bother me when people around me or close to me would pass away. But what I found is it makes it difficult to sleep. It doesn't make it difficult to eat for me. I, I uh, typically eat through these things and have always preferred that uh, Sister Carolyn Hairston make large volumes of any kind of food that she cooks for me. But you even have problems thinking straight, and you have problems with short-term memory loss. It's just amazing what grief does to the body. Revelation 21, 3 and 4 say this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning, crying, or pain. The first things have passed away.
First of all, when I read this, and I see, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. I go back to the hill of transfiguration. And I, and, and I think of, of Peter up there as he is with Jesus and Moses and God. And his first thought is, let me build a tabernacle for them. Now that I look at Revelation, what God is saying, you, you, don't, build a, you don't build a house for the presence of God. The presence of God is here among us. The presence of God lives in us. The presence of God surrounds us. The presence of God is with, now notice this, with his people. Verse 3 said, Jesus lived among them and said, they will be my people and I will be their God. He lived among us. You see, he was in heaven above, in the greatest place that you can ever be, the place where streets are paved with gold, the place where there is no sin, there is no sickness, there is no death, there are no problems there, but he left that and came here and made earth his home. I believe he did that so Jesus could know us. See, he knows how we function and how we feel. Jesus lived among us. He lived among people. He knows what dirty, rotten, stinking scoundrels we can be. He also knows what loving, caring people we can be. He knows how devious we can be, but he, he knows how we can also just give our everything for each other. You see, Jesus lived, he loved, and he left his legacy. He, he made an impact, an impact that even 2,000 years later is still impacting people every day. You see, Jesus claims us. Those who call on him, those who believe in him, become his people, called out from the world and saved. In class this morning, we talked about this. We are his holy nation, a people saved by him, a people called to do his work. In verse 4, Jesus wipes away all tears. In counseling, what you're taught is that you're not to bring the Kleenex box to the counseling session. You can have it there, but it's not yours to pull one out and hand it to the person you're counseling. The message there is, that you don't have a right to cry. You need to stop it. Now, it's one thing for Jesus to wipe my tears. It's another for me to try to stop you from crying. But here, Jesus wipes away all tears is a totally different thing. You see, the God and creator of the world uh, has experienced the loss of someone which means that he understands what loss 
really is. In this, he offers compassion because he has concern for us. He also offers comfort by alleviating the hurt of the moment. He can actually reach out with that Kleenex and wipe that tear because when he touches you, the pain is gone. The hurt has been taken away and you actually are feeling the comfort and peace that you need to feel at that moment. He also demonstrates his presence when we are suffering by showing us his consideration. He knows who we are, where we are, what we believe, and what he can do. Verse 4. It's the most amazing thing I believe in the world. This is one of the greatest promises that you can have uh, that's given to you in the Bible. In verse 4, he eradicates grief so that it will no longer plague us. Now, what I want to impose here or, or let us know here, remember we are in Revelation chapter 21. We have gone from Genesis chapter 1. We have come through all the writings of God up to this point, And what he's telling us as we get close to the end time, the final day, the day of judgment, on the day of judgment, all the grief and all the hurt and all the pain that you have experienced up until then, on the day of judgment, it's all gone. You see, Jesus experienced the death of his friends and family while he lived in this world, and he understands what you go through. One of the things you also learn in, in counseling is that when I come upon a scene and someone is hurting, I don't tell them I understand where they are today. And you know why? Because I do not. But Jesus understands the process of mourning. He understands what Kubler-Ross, I believe, stole from him. The denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Something that you can clearly see in Psalm 22. He knows what you're going to go through. He also knows that this process that you go through is not linear. That you will bounce around from denial to anger to bargaining, depression, acceptance. It will happen in different times, in different ways, on different days, and you can't control it. Something out of the blue will trigger it, and you will have a grief storm. He understands the release of emotion through crying. The moans and sobs and the hopeless feeling of not making it better or changing the outcome of what has transpired. He understands that he stands that, that deep, deep hurt that you're going through. You see, he understands the complexity and depth of our pain. Revelation 21, 5 and 6. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Folks, more promises for us. He tells us who he is here. And he tells us that he's taken care of it. In verse 5, God speaks after his, uh, he speaks after grief has been defeated. And he says, I am making everything new. He has just told us that, that grief and pain and mourning and crying and sobbing and hurting is all going to end. And then he says, after you have gone through that, I am making everything new. I call this extreme makeover God style. God is ready to make final changes that he has talked about throughout the Old Testament prophets. It is time for the new heavens and the new earth. God says, after all the pain that all the humans have, have experienced all the year, it is time for things to change. God has spoken, and now the prophet, and I believe it's the prophet John here, needs to write it down. Verse 6, God speaks again. And you got to like this. God says here, it is done. Just like in Psalm 22, where it says it is completed, where in uh, the last thing that Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, God now in verse 6 is saying it is done. God reminds us that it is his to choose the time. After all, he is the Alpha, which is the beginning and starting point. He was there when it came to be. But he says, I am the Omega, which is the end or the goal. He will not only be there when it began, but he's going to be there when it ends. He's, not, he's going to be there throughout all of it. But what he's also telling us is he is ready to fill the longings of creation. He says, to those who are thirsty, he is ready to let them drink the living water. Have you ever been thirsty? Have you ever uh, had the cotton mouth like I have right now because uh, that is the manifestation of, uh, of that, that I get sometimes when I speak? I, I either go into flop sweat or I, I have cotton mouth. But the fact of the matter is, he says, I can provide a cool drink of water. To those who are thirsty, he reminds them that the drink is priceless. He says, there is no cost here. You can't pay for it. There's nothing you can do. You can't work for it. This is something that God has, has brought about that you can take advantage of, but you cannot pay for. And folks, for me, I want to be able to do something. 
And what I have to do is choose. He's going to tell us in the next section what we have to do. He doesn't miss out on an opportunity to clue us in. In Revelation 21, 7 and 8, he says, He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all the liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Two sides of the coin, folks. Two signs, and you have to be focused on where you are right now. He's saying there are two sides. There are the overcomers, and then those who are going to burn in the lake of fire. Folks, the lake of fire, if you're not clued in right now, uh, is the word that we don't say in church often enough. It's hell. Hell, fire, and brimstone. It, you are going to be consumed in an ever non well, an ever-enduring, all-consuming fire. Have you ever just burned yourself a little bit? You know, I just, I, one time in, in chemistry class in high school, which, man, that's half a century ago, I remember we were making glass uh, pieces for a pipette, and I bent my glass a little bit too much and broke the glass. And I watched it. It looked like it had cooled off. And I reached down and picked up that piece of glass, and the biggest blister you ever saw happened right on the end of my finger. I bet I whined for a week. We're talking about a smidgen. Um, imagine your whole body consumed in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. What's he telling us here? First of all, the overcomers in Revelation are not those who conquered an earthly foe by force, but those who have remained faithful to Christ to the very end. The victory they achieve is analogous to the victory of Christ on the cross. To the overcomers, he is, he is cheering you on. He is cheering us on. He is saying, victory is yours, victory is yours, victory is yours. This is where a well-done, good and faithful servant uh, will be said to the overcomers. God continues here, and he says, he over, who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and God will be my son. And I don't know about you, as I'm looking at this, I want to be an overcomer. But if I am, what are these things? Man, I want to know. I want to... What's going to be my reward? Well, he tells us uh, in Revelation. In 2.7, well, first of all, he who overcomes will inherit these things previously mentioned. Uh, chapter 2, verse 7, overcomers will eat from the tree of life. Remember in Genesis 1, don't eat from the tree of life. What he's saying is, now eat whatever you want to. He opens it up. In chapter 2, verse 11, 
He says, overcomers will not be hurt by the second death. Remember, he's just told us about the second death. That is that lake of fire we just mentioned. In 2.17, overcomers will be given hidden manna and a white stone. Remember manna as they were in the wilderness. They were wanting something to eat, and God gave them the sweetest, best bread ever. I don't know about you, but one of the greatest meals you can get is you're sitting in the kitchen, you're smelling the warm bread that's in the oven. The honey is sitting there on the table, as is the butter. Are you with me, Joshua? Man, I tell you what, you put it on there and it just melts in your mouth. Hidden manna. But it says here, hidden manna in a white stone. One of the things that I understand from history is to get into the temple, there was a pecking order that the Jews had come up with. If you were righteous enough, they would give you a, a white stone. If you, if you were here on Wednesday nights when we were talking about uh, Cane Ridge Revival. The Cane Ridge Revival uh, was when they were doing communion. To actually do communion at Cane Ridge, you had to have a ticket. This is your ticket that he is giving you to heaven. Hidden manna in a white stone. 2.26, you, will, you as an overcomer will receive authority over nations. You will be over broad things. In vast things. In 3.5, overcomers will not have their names blotted out. You see, your, your name could be put <clears throat> in the book of life, and then you could walk away from God. I know that there are people that believe that, that once in, always in, but, but here he says, will not have their names blotted out. It could happen. If you are an overcomer and you have stayed faithful to the end, God is saying you have made it. Welcome home. 3.12, you will be a pillar in the temple. You will be what holds the temple of God up for the people to come and worship God. And then in 3.21, you will sit with Jesus on his throne you will be in the throne room of God with Jesus in the end. You will be singing the songs of praise and you will be with him forever. You will not be in the lake of fire. You will not be burning up. You will be saved. Folks, that would have been a great time for an amen. Boy, that was weak. Come on now. There we go. Because, folks, we, we have to believe this. I, you know what? We, we should be excited about this material. This is not just man-made material. This is the Word of God that God has given to us so that we can know that we are blessed, that we are saved, that we are the called-out people to take the message that He's given us to the outside world who lives in evilness and chaos. 
God has expectations of us. What this all means is, he who overcomes will become a child of God. Folks, a child of God. A child of the God who created everything. A child of the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The one who builds things up. The one who gives us power to to do the things that we need to do. And that was the good news. We haven't got to verse 8 yet. You see, God speaks to those who have chosen the other path. And and this other path that that he has here is what some would call the hellfire and brimstone of the Bible that we never talk about. But folks, we've got to talk about it. Jesus speaks boldly here to those who are not the overcomers. He says the second death is coming for the following. I'm glad that he puts us in terms that we can understand. You see, I want to be an overcomer. And if I am not an overcomer, I want to know why I might not be an overcomer so I can change before the second death comes, before the judgment day comes, before, as I like to say, before the bus shows up and it's time to get on it and I'm left standing at the bus stop. See, it's going to be worse than just standing at the bus stop jumping up and down because the bus driver didn't let you on. It's going to be the second death. It's going to be hellfire in a lake of sulfur. So, what is he telling us? Who are these that get the second judgment? He says the cowardly. Now, who are the cowardly? I would say the cowardly are the people who in the last resort chose personal safety over faithfulness to Christ. These are the rootless ones of the parable of the sowers who when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, quickly fall away. It is not a natural timidity that makes them what they are, but a lack of genuine commitment that provides the incentive for continuing in spite of persecution. What he's telling us here is you make a conscious choice to not follow Christ because things got tough. And folks, I understand that. That is an easy time for us to walk away, to blame it on other folks. But he also says the second death is coming for the unbelieving And he may not just be talking about the secular pagan world, but he may be also talking about believers here who have denied their faith under pressure. They may be the apostates who have renounced or given up their Christian faith, but they are people who have truly decided that the way of the Lord is not their way, and they are going to walk their way, not his way. The vile are those who have joined in the detestable Unholy ritual of emperor worship. Worshiping the government and not the governor. Worshiping 
the president and not the presider. Worshiping, worshiping the things of this world that, that seem to make our life easier here, but forgetting that Jesus and God have spoken to us to hold up to the truth. Here, they are the successors to the idolatrous Israelites who are consecrated themselves to that shameful idol if, and become as vile as the thing they love. If you are, are putting your faith in the three branches of government of the United States of America uh, to save you from what is evil in this world, you have made a big mistake. We can't love our government. We have to love Jesus. <clears throat> murderers. Man, I don't know about you, but it, when I saw murderers on the list, it's like, it's like man, I hadn't killed anybody today yet. Murders may refer to those committing acts of homicide here in this world. Acts of homicide. The sexually immoral are mentioned because the practice had become a major vice of paganism. And tell you what, folks, it's not just a problem back then, it's a problem today. You don't have to go far uh, in this community and you can find sexually immoral people, you can find uh, sexual immorality going on all around us. It's on the internet, it's on the TV, it is everywhere. Those who practice the magic arts. It reminds us of the scene in Ephesus where the sorcerers brought their scrolls together and burned them in public. Those who practice magic arts. Hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm a Sagittarius. Or I'm, I'm, I'm a Scorpio, and, and you know what? That controls what I do in my life. The way the stars revolve around in the heavens are having an impact on me, and that's what caused me the, to be the way I am. That's not what God says. God says if I'm practicing those uh, magic arts, I'm looking to the second death. The last one I think is very interesting. Liars. Who heard the song? I have to do it. Revelation, Revelation 21.8, 21.8. Liars go to hell, liars go to hell. Burn, 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 burn. I don't know, it was a, it was a song I picked up when I was a pagan child, and it just seemed appropriate. Liars is an appropriate view in John's emphasis on truth. All throughout John's gospel, all throughout John's uh, three books, all of Johannan literature is going to say, focus on truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And throughout Revelation, deviation from the truth is stigmatized. It's shown that that is what will lead to your demise.
You see, it says, those who are not overcomers, this is what's going to happen. Your part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Folks, you know, we went to Hawaii. Now it seems like 10 years ago. Maybe it was longer. Maybe it was shorter. As you get as old as I am, uh, years just seem to fly by. But the fact is, standing a couple of miles away from the lava flow of the volcano on the big island, we stood at a port in a parking lot, a hole, a lava hole, and hot air, hotter than you could stand to put your face into or put your hand into, was there. If you had crawled in that hole and gone back to the source of the heat, you would have seen the fire in the brimstone. It still pours out there regularly in Hawaii. Melting rock. Things that go into it burn up immediately. Fire and brimstone. And that leads to the second death. So what is God telling us in this part of Revelation? I believe that what God is wanting to tell you this morning is that he wants to wipe away all your tears. If you have pain of sorrow, sickness, health, disease, if death has, has taken uh, things away from you and this morning you are saddened beyond what you can fathom, you can actually take on, God wants to wipe away all your tears. And you may say, how, how can I have that happen? First of all, Jesus wants to be your Savior and your Lord. He wants you to put him first. He wants to be the one who leads you through life. He wants you to take on baptism. In Acts 2.38, the question in 36 was asked, what must I do to be saved? And the answer that Peter gave there was this, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, folks, you become an overcomer, and God will wipe away all your tears. You see, Jesus wants you to be one of his people. He wants you to uh, have a place in one of his houses of worship where you can be held accountable, but where you also can hold others accountable, where you can also affirm people and people can't affirm you. God wants you to be one of his called out holy people thriving in his kingdom. Can't stress it enough. Jesus wants to wipe away the tears of those who believe in him. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if the sadness of the world, because of the world's condition, has taken a hold of you. 
I don't know if you're consumed by some disease that you seem like there is no hope for. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe there are just things in your life that have led you to a deep, dark depression. But I want to tell you this morning, there is hope. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Our God, the creator of the universe, wants to put his arms around you, and he wants to wipe away all your tears. Gary's going to lead us in a song, and during that song, if you have a need, you can come forward and we will pray about that need. If by chance you want that to be private, one of our elders is going to go off to the conference room, and at that time, our leader will uh, listen to you and, and help you through that moment and pray with you. And so right now, here's your opportunity as we stand as we sing.